Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundations and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person built, uh, began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation whilst the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure heap. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Here in this passage, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel, he's been traveling to Jerusalem since chapter 9. And he'll continue traveling towards Jerusalem until, until chapter 19. And as we see here in verse 25, there's a large crowd following Jesus. But Jesus does not want casual followers. And so he does what he does on other occasions. He sifts the crowd. I don't know how many of you have a, a garden sieve uh, at home. Maybe one of these large metal cylindrical cylinder type um, objects with a, a, a wire mesh, a strong wire mesh at the bottom of the tube. And into this cylinder object you can put lots of earth and soil and then you give it a really good shake. And out comes the soil at the bottom, and you're left with the rocks and the weeds, and you pick them up and you throw them away. Well, Jesus is wanting to sift the crowd, maybe in the opposite direction. He's wanting to put the crowd into his sieve of teaching and challenge, and he wants to shake the crowd, and the crowd will fall through, many of them, and disappear from following him. But he knows that some will remain in the sieve and he'll pick them up and he'll say, Ah, a true disciple. Someone who will follow me right to the end. So let's look at this sifting. And we see in verse 25 that Jesus is purposeful. He, he turns to the large crowd. He, he stops the walk. And he turns to them and he gives them three strong challenges. He says three times, if you don't do such and such, then you cannot be my disciple. He says it in verse 26, if you don't 
You can't be my disciple. In verse 27, if you don't, you can't be my disciple. And then again in verse 33, if you don't, you can't be my disciple. We can imagine the crowd maybe responding. Jesus, it's, it's a beautiful sunny day. We're having good conversations. Why have you had to spoil it with such serious demands? But Jesus is sifting them. He's looking for true disciples. And Jesus is sifting us this evening. Every single person in this room right now, everyone online, Jesus is sifting us. He's talking to us. He's stopping us on our journey of life to challenge us about our discipleship. And so the title of our sermon this evening is The Sifting Saviour. And his overall requirement is found in verse 33, which is a, which is a, a kind of summary of his teaching. But really, in verse 33, he's saying, if you, can't, if you, cannot, you cannot be my disciple unless you renounce everything you have. Verse 33. Unless you renounce everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. It says there, um, give up. But maybe renounce is a bit of a stronger word and captures the Greek a little bit more. In English, renounce simply means to formally declare your abandonment of a claim, a right, or a possession. To to say, I I give up completely, demanding that those things are mine and that they're first place. Now, Jesus' demand is a relative statement. He isn't demanding a rejection of all material things. He's calling for a rejection of all material things that come in the way of following him. Disciples of Jesus are called by him to a wholehearted commitment that whenever it comes to a choice between a thing, a possession, a person, and Jesus himself, the disciple will always choose Jesus. True disciple of Jesus says, when it comes to following Jesus, I renounce all that I have. I make a commitment that nothing will come between me and following my Savior. And if we don't have this wholehearted commitment, we won't follow Jesus. That's the point. When something comes along with a greater draw and appeal, we will follow that instead. So imagine with me a a nice, large, smooth table. And on that table, there is one small metal paper clip. And onto the table, you also put a magnet, a nice-sized magnet. And you move the magnet towards the paper clip, and the paper clip attaches to the magnet. And wherever you move the magnet on the table, the paper clip stays attached closely to the magnet. But then imagine you put onto the table a lot of other magnets, some with greater pull and some with lesser power than that original magnet. And you move the magnet in amongst the other magnets and it comes close to one that is of far greater pulling power. And suddenly 
Where is the paperclip? It's on the new magnet. It's no longer attached. It's no longer following. It's been drawn away. You may be following Jesus this evening closely. But are there things that come across your path that draw you away from following him? When it comes to a choice, they have greater drawing power on you than Jesus does. Jesus says, unless everything in your life is second to me, you cannot be my disciple. You won't always follow me. You know, this choice between Jesus and things isn't theoretical. It's a matter of daily life. Do we follow Jesus with how we spend our money? We could think of that in many, many different areas. Just think about the shopping basket for a second. Whether that's a shopping basket online or whether it's in the retail outlet. Why are those items in your basket? Are you drawn by Jesus or are you drawn by something else? Is that why they're there? Now, there won't often be a conflict. Many times there's no conflict. But sometimes there will be a conflict. On those occasions, why are they there? Who wins out? Do we follow Jesus with our use of time? Again, we could think of many areas. And of course, we all as Christians are seeking to, to use our time in the right way. And I have no doubt that that's what's going on a lot of the time. But we all know there's challenges there as well. There's all sorts of activities that could be going on in our lives. From seemingly godly ones to other ones that seem essential. Keeping fit, studies, hobbies, Instagram. Now we're into a bit dodgy water. Fantasy football, keeping up your team. Now we're into really dodgy water. Again, why are they there in your life? Are you drawn by Jesus? Or are you drawn by something else? There doesn't have to be a conflict. But when there is, who and what is winning out? So are we aware that we are making choices of discipleship with what we put in our shopping basket and what activities we choose to do and when we choose to do them? That's just two examples. But Jesus is sifting us this evening. If we are to be true disciples of Jesus, all things must come behind him. A distant second. Otherwise we will not follow him, we will follow them. Now, as we've said, verse 33 is a summary. And in verses 26 and 27, Jesus focuses in on the specifics. And so our first specific point is, you cannot be my disciple, Jesus says, unless you hate your family. It's a comparative statement. There it is in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate 
father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, you cannot be my disciple. Are you shocked by that statement? You're meant to be. Jesus is sifting the crowd. He's sifting us. Now, Jesus doesn't mean hate, as in loathe and despise. He's already taught, hasn't he? Love your neighbor as yourself. (laughs) Jesus is not into us hating in that way at all. No, he expects us to love our families deeply. But in relation to following him, we must get the message. There is no competition. Jesus doesn't just come slightly first. He is in another league altogether when it comes to our love and our loyalty. The distance between Jesus being first and family being second is the distance between love and hate. There is no rivalry. Not for a single second. Maybe you have a favorite meal. Maybe you're thinking about it right now. You've just just started getting it in your mind. Now, you like other meals, absolutely. But any time you go to a restaurant and your favorite meal is on the menu, there's no competition. Maybe you're one of those kind of people. It's as if you hate every other meal because you will always choose your favorite meal. There is never a moment of doubt in your mind. There's no rivalry. You always choose your favorite meal. That's what Jesus is getting at here. If you are to follow Jesus, your family must come firmly second behind him. If they don't, you can't be his disciple. And just two things on that. This is not bad news for your family. You will bless them more and love them better as you put Jesus first. Your family should never fear you putting Jesus first. You will only love them more as you put him first. And secondly, it is only by putting Jesus first that you can hope that your family will put him first. You know, our culture makes a virtue of putting the family first, especially children. But parents, if you bring up your children and they know that they are first in your life, why would they ever put Jesus first in their lives? They must see you putting Jesus first. Then they will be encouraged to follow Jesus wholeheartedly themselves. If we believe Jesus is the saviour and only hope of mankind, then we must put him first so that our children will put him first. And if you are single, you must put Jesus first so that your family and friends might also come to see that Jesus is truly worth following. We could think of many examples in our daily lives of where this might play out. We're just going to think of one example. And in giving this one example, I'm not trying to prescribe to you a certain behavior. Try and see the principle behind the illustration and think through how you apply that principle. But let's just think about a family home. 
for the moment. We'll, we'll think about, it could be a student home, it could be a, a singles home, it could be, and maybe we'll move on to that in a moment, but just think about the family home for a minute, and it's movie night. And the chosen movie, you already know, dishonors Jesus. There's plenty of them out there. And you know that before the movie ever starts. Now, dads, let me speak to dads for a moment. Who will your family see you following? Them or Jesus? I'm not trying to put the family in the wrong category and make the dad the perfect example. It could be the other way around. But I don't want to put the responsibility of leading on them. I want to put it on the one who should lead the family, the father. If the family are wanting to watch this movie, dads, what will you do? Will they see you following Jesus? Will they hear you say, no, that's not the way to go? Or will they see you going with the flow? Let's say we're 20 minutes into the movie. And now we're in a student home or a singles home. And 20 minutes in, suddenly Jesus is dishonored in the movie in a clear way. In that group of students, in that group of friends... Who will follow Jesus? Who will say, let's stop? I'm not saying that's easy. And you may not be listened to. You may have to leave. You may be listened to, but they're not very happy with you. Following Jesus is observable. It's felt by you and by others. It's not a theory. Our following of Jesus must be wholehearted so that our family and friends see it. It should be so wholehearted that no precious relationship between family or friends stands in the way. All other loyalties must come second all of the time. Discipleship isn't temporary volunteer work on our own terms and at our own convenience. It's a daily reality. It's a daily privilege. Jesus goes on. And the next thing he says is, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate yourself. Again, it's a comparative statement. And again, Jesus doesn't mean hate as in loathe and despise. As we said, he's taught, love your neighbor as yourself. He expects you to love yourself and to care for yourself lovingly. But Jesus is sifting us. Have we got our own self in the right place when it comes to following Jesus? So we read in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, dot, 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 their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now verse 27 is most likely explaining the thrust of verse 26 as it applies 
to laying down your own life and denying yourself. And there are many things we could say about this image of bearing and carrying our cross. We just want to focus on one this evening. Carrying a Roman cross would be a familiar sight in Jesus' day. Whenever it was witnessed, the crowds knew the person was making a one-way journey to death. There was no getting out of it. They were going one way and it ended in the death of that person. And Jesus is saying, you cannot be my disciple unless you are willing to die for me. Spiritually, of course, to sin and to self, but physically, physically. Dear Christian, if you love your physical life more than Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. Because when it comes to the choice between dying for Jesus and saving your earthly life, you will choose your earthly life. That will be the magnet that draws you away. So Jesus calls us to renounce all that we have, to place our families and selves firmly behind his claims on our lives. If this is true discipleship, and it is, then we need to stop and count the cost of discipleship. We need to see what discipleship is. That's what we have been looking at just now. This evening. And when we see what it is, we need to make a decision to follow wholeheartedly in light of the cost. That's what Jesus is calling us to. And Jesus underlines how important it is to stop and count the cost of discipleship by giving us two illustrations that make the same general point. The point being... Stop and consider the cost before you begin. And don't begin unless you have counted the cost of following him. And so he gives us two illustrations. And the first one is an illustration of a builder. It begins in verse 28. In one way, there's... There is one builder, but in one way that you could say that there's two builders um, in view. In verse 28, you kind of have the builder as the wise builder doing the right thing. And then it moves into 29 and we're given what happens if the builder doesn't do the right thing and is not wise. So let's consider the wise builder in verse 28 first. And we're told that he wants to build a tower. It could be a tower in a vineyard. It could be a watchtower, or it could be a storage tower, or it could be a tower that does both things at the same time. But he calculates the materials needed. He calculates the workforce needed and the hours that are needed to construct the tower. And when he has calculated everything, he stops. He sits down, we're told. And he considers whether he has the money to cover all the expenses of the project. Only then 
does he begin to build? Moving into 29, though, we kind of get the, uh, another example. This is what happens if he doesn't do that. We get the foolish builder in verse 29, and we see that he runs out of money. He has to stop building because he didn't stop and consider at the beginning. And the unfinished building becomes an enduring witness to his lack of consideration. And he is made fun of by his watching neighbors. You know, I know someone who once followed Jesus, but doesn't now. And his present friends, his lost friends, still say to him at times, didn't you used to believe that nonsense? They don't let him forget his unfinished business, his unfinished decisions. Don't let this happen to you. If you're a Christian of one month, if you're a Christian of one year, if you're a Christian of 50 years, and you've never properly considered the cost of following Jesus, do it today. Do it this week. And if you haven't started following Jesus, but you have been thinking about it, don't begin casually. Stop. Sit down and count the cost. There's a second illustration in verses 31 and 32. In this illustration, there is a king who has an army of 10,000, and he is being approached by a king with an army of 20,000. What will the wise king do? Well, he'll do exactly what the wise builder did. He will stop, and he will sit down and consider the cost. That's what we see in verse 31, isn't it? Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able That's the repeated line in both illustrations. Jesus isn't wanting us to focus on the differences between the two illustrations primarily. He's wanting us to focus on the one thing they both repeat. Sit down and consider the cost. This is the instruction Jesus means to underline by giving us these two illustrations. He is saying... If you are going to follow me, you must stop, you must sit down, and you must count the cost. If you are not willing to count the cost, don't begin. You will become like tasteless salt. Verse 34. You know, salt in the days of Jesus was an impure Substance. It was a mixture of sodium chloride and kind of rock residue from where it was quarried. And the salt could be washed out of the mixture, leaving the remaining substance tasteless and useless. Such salt was thrown away. And in verse 34, there are echoes of God's judgment. We're supposed to hear that. Jesus is saying, it is better not to begin and to begin and fail to finish. 
And so discipleship is serious. Dear brothers and sisters, it's serious. You must commit to choosing Jesus over everything else or you cannot be his disciple. Verse 33. You must love him far above family or friends or you cannot be his disciple. Verse 26. You must love him more than your own life or you cannot be his disciple. Verse 27. If you love any of these things before Jesus, at some point they will come between you and Jesus and you will fail to follow and you won't finish. And you'll become useless to the kingdom of God. But, but, you are not only to count the cost, you are also to count on Christ for discipleship. Look back at verse 26. Verse 25. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me. If anyone comes to me. Discipleship is firstly not doing, but coming to a person. It isn't making your own way. It's trusting Jesus to make your way. It's being convinced that he is sufficient for the whole journey of discipleship and putting your trust in him completely. So Christian, when you sit down to consider the cost, first consider Jesus and the cost he counted for you. He paid for all your failures, for all your sins, so that you could follow him. He died and rose again, so he could be the builder in your life. The builder who always finishes the tower. Paul was convinced of that, wasn't he? When he wrote to the Philippians, he said, I am certain that God, who began a good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. God in Christ will start and finish the building job in all his disciples. So discipleship begins with trusting Jesus completely with the whole of your life of following him. But don't only consider Jesus as builder, consider him as king. I don't think it's an accident that Jesus gives us two illustrations here which reflect back on him so appropriately as builder and king, which is what he is. And Jesus is the one who defeated Satan at the cross so that he could be your king, the one who defeats your enemies and brings you home. In your discipleship, if you are trusting in Jesus alone, it doesn't matter whether you face 20,000 or 2 million. It doesn't matter whether you face them with 10,000 or with two. Mary Slessor, that famous missionary in the 1800s to Calabar in Africa, she said, one person with God is a majority. King Jesus is the only one we need to overcome all our enemies. 
What we can't do in our strength, we can do in his. He is our warrior king. In Revelation 17, we read this. They will wage war against the Lamb. That's the enemies of God waging war against Christ the Lamb. But the Lamb will triumph over them because he is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, faithful followers. Do you see that? We have a a builder and a king who sanctifies us and brings us home. So dear brothers and sisters, as you count the cost of following Jesus, and you must, only count the cost through the person of Jesus Christ. Don't consider following him in your own strength. It will crush, crush you and it can't be done. But do sit down and consider the cost In and through Jesus. How do you know you will begin building and not give up? Because you begin by trusting totally in Jesus, the master builder. How do you know you can take on a greater enemy than yourself and win? Because you begin by putting all your trust in the one who has already overcome the enemy for us all. Why would you be drawn? Why would you be drawn tonight to someone who demands that you put him first in your life? Why would you be drawn to such a one? If you're trusting in Jesus Christ, you'll be drawn because he's put you first. He's put you first. Here in our passage, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He's determined to go to Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and the city that will kill him, that will hang him on a cross. But it's the Father's will and the Son's pleasure to go to the cross so that he might put you and me first, that he might bear our sin. Our wrongdoing, our selfishness, our rebellion, our ugliness. That we might be delivered from it. Delivered from it. And know the joy of following him wholeheartedly. Surely you can follow a saviour like that. In fact, doesn't that saviour draw you? Don't you want to follow him above all other things as you consider that? Jesus is truly magnetic, dear brothers and sisters. He is magnetic. He is beautiful in his character. He is glorious in his faithfulness. He is astounding in his love. He is awesome in his divinity. Did Paul, the apostle, follow Jesus out of his own determination? No. He said, the love of Christ compels me, forces me, draws me. 
Christ's love irresistibly drew Paul to follow Jesus. He could say, I'm drawn by his love for me. Why can our brothers and sisters in deep persecution choose death and Christ rather than life and denial? It isn't because they are special. It is because they are drawn by his love. Are you beholding Jesus enough to be drawn by his beautiful character? Or are other things drawing you away so you don't behold him and you're not magnetized? I don't know, have you ever found an activity difficult to do? Others seem to really enjoy doing it, but you don't. It never quite clicks for you. Maybe take something like skiing. You go and you see people gliding around the slopes. They make it look so easy, but you just don't seem to get it. And you're not enjoying it. And then you realize why. You've never stopped and sought instruction. You just began. But when you did stop and receive instruction, skiing came alive for you. Suddenly, it was a joy on the slopes like everybody else. And only then did frustration turn to joy. Is anyone here not enjoying following Jesus? Is anyone here not enjoying following Jesus? Is it because you've never sat down and counted the cost of following him? Is it because you're following on your own terms? There is no joy in following Jesus on your own terms. But when we hear afresh Jesus' demands of discipleship and we stop and consider them carefully and having counted the cost, we follow him, then we discover fellowship with him and joy in our discipleship. So Jesus is sifting us this evening. Jesus is sifting us this evening. But only so that he might say, Ah, a true disciple. I will sustain you. I will bring you home. Come follow me with all your heart. So the message of Christianity isn't, please come join us and here are some incentives. It's, here is the greatest news ever, but it will cost you. It's so worth it. But you must renounce everything to follow Christ. Amen.